All right. Hello. Uh, welcome back to Invisible Machines. We've got a great show today. We're having a conversation with Tim Wood, who is a senior UX manager and principal designer uh, with Amazon Web Services, focusing on AI and AI platforms. Uh, really, we kind of go all over in this one. We, we talk a bit about yeah. some of the more practical challenges that are right in front of us, as well as like some of the, the, the bigger challenges uh, that are sort of looming in the, in the dark on the horizon. Yeah. And yeah. Tim's a real insider, you know, it's, yeah, it's fascinating to kind of see what's happening, you know, in the, in the engine room, so to speak. Yeah. And, uh, he was at Kodak at a pivotal moment, kind of as things were, were moving, I think from analog to digital. So he, he's sort of seen some of these things before. Um, although. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's seen disruption and he knows what it feels like to be disrupted. Surely. And, and try to, try to steer the ship in the right direction, you know, with the wind completely blowing against you. Yeah. So he's should be interesting. Yeah. The, the sails uh, are billowing, I suppose. Let's talk to him. All right. Here we go. Let's get to Tim. All right. Uh, Tim, uh, great to have you on the podcast. Um, Rob and I, we were having this uh, discussion as we kind of watched. I don't know if you've seen the video of Tesla's new uh, robot, kind of like robot army. Um, mm, yeah. Have you seen it? We can, we have it queued up. We can play it for you. Yeah. It's been in the media quite a bit. I've, I've yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen part of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the question that we came up with or the thing we were trying to figure out is like, why is there this impulse to design robots that look and behave like humans? Is it, is it a response yeah. to, you know, the many things in the world that are typically kind of done by humans or is it maybe tied into kind of our our obsession latent as it may be at times to anthropomorphize everything mm. yeah, so I, yeah like 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 our, our elbows like are our arms really like well designed and like why why doesn't it look like the 1950s sort of you know uh vacuum cleaner hose where you could like bend in any place like it's it looks a lot like a like a like an elbow is that is that is that because it's just we're just so well designed or is what's going on there well i i don't i don't actually know what's yeah there we go i don't actually know what's <laughs> what's going on with that i think you know there's obviously we have these sort of cultural tropes that we that we buy into right and, and, and cultural tropes perpetuated by you know, mainstream science fiction films and whatnot. So I think there's a there's a tendency to to kind of follow into that uh, that mold. But also, you know, as you were saying, is human beings have and just are 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 that walk weird. looks like he's like sneaking out of the room after a one night stand. Like that's what that <laughs> yeah. does. But what, what I was seeing is like our 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 our, our pattern, our behaviors are, are very much focused on trying to anthropomorphize objects that we relate to, right, or relate with. If anything has any sort of intelligence or, or you know, um, uh, you know, is any sort of manifestation in the physical world where where you can communicate with something, or whatever, we always try to anthropomorphize those things. We anthropomorphize our pets, right? Like we we when we yeah. talk to our dogs and cats, we treat them as as they're people. in strollers now. Yeah, they're in strollers. We dress them up. Yeah. We feed them food that looks like our food. It's like it's out of control, right? What I think people don't realize is that our our pets do the same thing to us. Like your dog doesn't view you as a human. The dog just views you as a strange dog, 
right? And That's the cat used you as a, as a strange cat as well, right? So it's just that this is the natural human tendency to sort of anthropomorphize. So if we're thinking about embodied technology, right, especially embodied intelligence of some kind, some sort of embodied artificial intelligence, I think the tendency is like, oh, we're going to make this sort of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, android or humanoid sort of robot, right? And then kind of manifest things that way. But uh, Rob, I think you're asking the questions like, are, is this elbow the right choice? Are these fingers the right sort of idea? But there's it's a really interesting book. I don't know if you guys know about Hans Moravec. He, I think he's a researcher at Carnegie Mellon. He's written a number of books about robotics and he's thinking about um, what what is the sort of ultimate form of, of a sort of the most flexible robot. And Rod, is exactly like you're saying. It's not about arms and fingers. It's about this set of almost like fractal-like appendages that extend out from a machine that can be reconfigured and, and manipulated in lots of different ways for like ultimate flexibility, right? That's when you start thinking about a very sophisticated type of machine and embodied intelligence from that perspective, like that's probably more realistic. So like, what are these, what are these Musk robots going to do? Like, what are they for? What's the context of their use? Are they right. meant to replace a human in some sort of human context? Like, I, I honestly don't know, right? And it's, it's, it is kind of strange. That's sure. a super interesting point you make, though, because if, if, if dogs, I don't know, you know, what it's called when a dog anthropomorphizes um, uh, and Can sees a another dog. <laughs> um, but th that suggests it's some sort of lizard brain thing, like something that we're not going to shed. You know, it's just it's we're, it's like it's so it, it's so programmed deep in us that like that that machine's going to have to keep reminding us that it's that it's not it's it's not well, a yeah. human. Well, this is this is very like this idea of reminding that it's not a human is that's that's a really good point because when we start talking about some of the like we're seeing some really cool technologies emerge right now right with with uh, some of these chat technologies so these these LLMs the interesting thing is like people anthropomorphize those as well when you're interacting right. with an LLM people interact with that model as if it's a human. Right. And there's there's all sorts of interesting and problematic behaviors that go along with that. Right. So, you know, there's sort of perceiving that it's a, a it's a human like entity. Right. Because you're having this very human like dialogue. But there's also, you know, sort of as you're having that dialogue in your perception of the model, there's also a sort of trust and emotional bond that sort of emerges. Like we're humans. We have emotional connections to things, especially when we're having that sort of, you know, very human like interactive dialogue. Of course, you're going to invest emotion into this this entity that you're interacting with. Of course, this entity has no emotion. It doesn't it, it doesn't really know what emotion is. It doesn't even really know it's talking to you, right? We're not talking about sentient machines here. So you start to impart that sort of value into that system. And that's problematic because these systems aren't human and they're yeah, not necessarily it. trustworthy either. And they're 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 problematic in different ways. And so that anthropomorphization, that's a word. Um, can be very problematic when it comes to like just like usability and and built using these things to to create layers on tops of uh, layers of interface on tops of other technologies, right? It's right. it's really, really huge issues with expectations, right? Because now now we you know we add this layer of of things we expect from it like kindness or empathy, wisdom. empathy, yeah, wisdom, yeah, that, love, hate. yeah, that it's not it's not really there, you know. It's it's not that um, no, yeah we we it, with our with our other Tim conversations we were talking about like leading the witness you know it's like very easy there there you know there's a there's a sort of intellectual 
component to like, can you be led, right? And 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 you know, the, some people are, are are more easily led to say things they don't mean. Um, and you know, when it comes to ChatGPT, it's it's very easy to lead the witness. You can make it say all kinds of things, just just if you're clever enough on on how to lead it to say it. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to trying to get it to to crack, right? To say something it doesn't it doesn't mean. Yeah. Which, which quite frankly is easy because it doesn't mean anything it says. Yeah, yeah. We we apply that meaning. And this is one of the things like, you know, when we talk about the risks of, you know, associated with artificial intelligence and machine learning, a lot of the discussion is around, you know, bias in the data and, you know, trying to reduce the, you know, kind of hallucinations and, and, Uh and other sort of problematic behaviors that can, that can occur within the model, right? And you're dealing with the technicalities of models and understanding how they drift over time and how the sort of context of their use is changing, which also affects how the model operates. And so there's always this, when you're think talking about machine learning, you're always talking about how do you sort of maintain and, and continuously operate that model and keep it updated? And that's that's a that's a, just a technical challenge that you have to deal with. But for me, you know, these ideas around sort of bias, like yeah, those are problems, and they're they're very significant problems that have to be overcome. But there's 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 second order challenges that start to emerge as well with all of these technologies, and uh, it's it goes beyond just things like bias. And, and what I'm talking about is, Rob, what you're saying is like le- the sort of, some people are able to be led or they think something is true or they're, they know. perceive this model to be robust. So you it, it can do things, it can lead you in certain ways, it can influence how you think, it can influence how you perceive certain facts and information. It can it can control a lot, of, a, a lot about how the information is flowing to you and therefore um, impact your decision-making process, your autonomy, your agency, et cetera. And I think that's the real thing to be worried about, right? We're, we're starting to see some really amazing, um, you know, image generation technology, video generation technology, object generation technology. Really, we're starting to see this emergence of a lot of synthetic media, like synthetic media that's almost, you can't you can't distinguish it from other things, from reality, right? You, you can't uh-huh. distinguish reality in fact it's it's kind of the manifestation of the idea of uh, in post in postmodernism of hyper reality like like artificial intelligence is kind of like the apotheosis of postmodernism from that sense and so right. we're starting to create that hyper reality but i don't think anybody really fully understands the impact to society and culture that that's going to create like you know you saw a little bit of that when you know you start to see some digital tools emerge like photoshop and some of the image um, editing technologies where you can start mm-hmm. to like like the truth of the photograph, like was suddenly degraded, you know, very significantly. But that was a very simplistic technology, you know, with with bitmap no, no, no. graphics. Now we're talking about synthesizing whole people, synthesizing dialogue, syn- synthesizing data, synthesizing, you know, entire, you know, films from scratch. Whatever the situation is, think about how powerful that technology can be. When we start looking at, you know, the, the things that happened in, you know, Facebook in 2016 and, you know, like Facebook's a very simple technology, but it was able to sort of influence, you know, American politics in a very significant okay. way. Just, you know, a couple of weird posts here, targeted information here, misinformation over here. Now imagine a fully synthetic media environment and what that can yeah. do like to to a to a culture to a society to to an individual right yeah, it's like the whole McLuhanism component the global village thing going on here that's like 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 absolutely mind-boggling you know that's that like a, a 
like the singularity may not just be in the machines and maybe in the in the humans right like well like, like the singularity is in us as like again that whole global village idea right like we're all our community is just it's just like this massive artificial virtual thing it's yeah. not real people anymore it's it's like pieces of interactions that that it's it's a network of hyper reality right, right. and then, <laughs> and then yeah. humans humans are kind of in the middle of that that massive graph right we're right. nodes in that graph but we're we're not we're not the only nodes now there's all this sort of syn synthetic information and and other some other media kind of coming in as well like it's it's a really interesting time right yeah. it's like this is a turning point for the entire civilization. That's at least that's my perspective, right? This is yeah. a very significant moment in history. Yeah, the, the let's say you think like the components of a community are, are people. Could that be different? Could the components, the raw components of what a community is, end up just being experiences that mm -hmm. make up your day, and 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 that collection of experiences makes up your community, not actual like people and it's like this perception problem where you feel fulfilled at the end of the day, like a potato chip you feel fulfilled at the end of the day but there's still there's like low nutritional value because there was something you still feel full but there was still something missing because it wasn't it wasn't actual people it was yeah, just you're maybe these... missing an emotional component or or some sort right. of other satisfactory aspect of 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 a human you know one to one yeah. human one to many human interaction right yeah yeah, I mean, we're social yeah. we're social organisms right i mean we're primates by default we're we're social like we're some of the most social animals on the planet right we we and that's that's kind of how we evolved so if you start They're to not. take away the actual social connection rob i think that's what you're saying right if you start to pull that away what happens what is the yeah. nature of what does that do to us seems like there's also a space too though to where uh, uh just to where um you know, as an interface conversation can recede enough into the background where there could be situations where technology is doing things for us, but we are taking very little notice of it. Uh, I guess that would require a lot of trust being put into it and certain things would have to happen to get us there. But then you're in a situation where maybe you can improve the quality of the interactions that you have with the people in your life, in your community. Uh, yeah. It's probably kind of a lofty goal, but need a lot of design work to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the car, like wherever you steer it and drive it and, and, and wherever you choose to go is where you end up, not where the car took you. Um, so you got in, you drove it somewhere. And, and if, if that destination was to go hang out with friends, then that made that car and that technology, like, you know, enriching for your life. If you, if you choose to get in the car to just go watch a movie by yourself uh, on the screen, then, then then you, yeah, you, you used it to be alone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, when Photoshop came up, I think we were talking with Tim O'Reilly as well, like yeah. this idea that, you know, someone could use Photoshop and insert a person into a scene that wasn't there and they could do it at a level where you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I don't know. But there's, yeah. there's something more unsettling, I suppose, about a machine being able to do that. Like if a machine did that and not a human, it creates a layer of discomfort. And then I, I suppose you also add in like, if a machine's doing it, it can do it at scale. It's not gonna take six hours that it would take a person to sit there and smooth all those edges. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're also talking too about fidelity in other dimensions. Like, you know, Photoshop is basically just kind of a two-dimensional experience, right? A two-dimensional impact. But 
Um, you, you know, I think we understand that <clears throat> all images in, and things that we see are somewhat processed, but now like you, the discernibility between reality, what's real and what's false, like starts to, starts to get much more complex, right? We start thinking about all the things that we see. Um, we start thinking about, uh, all the media that we receive. You even think about like, you know, if you look at what's happening with like chat GPT, chat GPT can be asked to be influential, right? It can understand aspects of your your um your cultural perspective, right? What you where you come from, what you believe, mm -hmm. what you know. It can target that it can very simply target that through some very simple prompt engineering, right? And it's you know it's different with like a Photoshop. Like Photoshop can convince you via images that something is true. And you can ask questions and we can test whether or not those images are real or not. But then when you have an entity that has these very human like qualities telling you things you know, that's a very different type of experience, right? And, you know, and if it, if it speaks with a certain type of voice and a certain type of authority uh, with a certain level of nuance, and, and by the way, these, these, these LLMs can do that, right? Very well. Um, you can tell it to, ex you can tell it to explain something as if you were a kindergartner or a college student I and it will do that. And so you think about that level of impact, right? How tailored that can get it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's powerful. I think it's more power, powerful than most people realize yet. Like what yeah. this is going to do. I think there's a, there's another dimension to this that, that doesn't get talked about a lot, which is, uh, um, this idea, like, you know, we have these senses, right? The, the, the sensory input data, our eyes, our smell, ears. Um, and, and, uh, with each, sense we have like a different degree of certainty and confidence score in a sense right so when we see fire versus when we hear fire versus when we smell fire, like each sense has its own like i see fire i have a higher confidence that there is fire than if i smell fire versus i hear fire and then of course when you combine them together that confidence even goes higher i smell and i see fire and when you look at this is sort of the McLuhan angle, which is like digital media is just another sense. It's just an extension of our senses, right? It's just it's just another sense feeding data input. Um, but you could also say that it also has its confidence score, right? And so if we see it online, right, um, you know, we're we're piggybacking on the confidence of of sight, right? Like, you know, I saw the fire. I saw the fire online. Um, but there's also a chance that, that that score just goes down, that we just don't regard it. It, it doesn't weigh as much into our sort of confidence level as, as, as it did before. And it says like, now if I smell fire, because, because like my neighbor's always barbecuing, right? So now if I smell fire, just, I don't believe it anymore, right? I don't. Like he's yeah. always barbecuing, like my, but if I see fire, like in my kitchen, so, so now seeing it online is just, it's like, it's like super low confidence. Like, uh, it's just my neighbor barbecuing probably, you know, this is, this kind of speaks to the idea of, of kind of media literacy and the level of sophistication people have with understanding what they're consuming and, 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 and what's being delivered to them and how it's being delivered. Right. As, as you were talking about like that, that fifth sense. And I, it's interesting because I've been thinking like, all right, well, you know, if you look at boomers versus Generation X, I would say probably Generation X understands a lot about the sort of 
fallacies inherent to like sort of digital media consumption where that can be somewhat problematic. But not everybody in, in Gen X, right? If you're on the tech side, you definitely you definitely understand a lot of these issues. And then I get worried, like, do does Gen's does Gen Y like Gen Y uh, millennials definitely um, are much more sophisticated, I think, than Gen X in terms of understanding how to sort of navigate the digital space and understand the kind of reality that's emerging. Uh-huh. There. Like, they're they're very sort of sensitive to that. What's been interesting is, and I don't have data or, or anthro research around this yet, but I suspect that Gen Z is even more sophisticated, right? Like they're the ones who are in TikTok all the time. Like, you know, they're never in Facebook, right? But they're doing all the stuff and they're, you know, building things in Roblox and on TikTok and they're in all these other environments. You know, and when I talk to younger people, it's surprising. And when I, I mean younger people, I mean like younger than like 13, like, you know, these 10 year olds or eight year olds. You talk to right. them about what they're doing they have this sort of inherent knowledge about what's bullshit and what's not. Like they kind of know, like, because they've been in the space so long, but I, I, I think there's hope for them in terms of being able to sort of traverse the space. But again, the, the landscape is about to get a lot more complex too. And I'm really curious to see how this sort of this, this emerging generation deals with, with all this. And, 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 and because they're the ones who have to figure it out. Like we're, we're kind of at the end of the end of our run, right? They're coming right. into the world and they're, they're coming into it. And, you know, we used to say digital natives back in the day, right, Rob, when we were thinking mm-hmm. about types of users, this is beyond being digital native. This is, this is a whole different level of sophistication in terms of yeah. use and understanding. And it's because they're just, they emerge into that environment, but they're also not entirely duped by it. Right. Yeah. And there's, and there's also like something like what, I don't know what you call it, like tooth fairy syndrome, you know, like, you know, you, you you teach your kids that the tooth fairy exists. Everyone pretends it exists, and it's fun. It's fun to pretend it. Like we all just, you know, kids know. There's that age. They know, you know. But you're gonna keep this charade going on, right? And right. they're like, okay, like this is. It's fine. I'll, I'll I'll pretend it's real. Let's go with it. Like, why not? Does it have to? Like, oh, do I have money to involved, get to the truth? Know? Do I have to know the truth? Like, do I need? Do I need the truth on everything? Like, ah, it's okay. I kind of like. I like this idea of the tooth fairy, so I'm just going to go with it. You know, it doesn't matter what the truth is. I, 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 it's my truth, and, and I'm going to choose yeah. it. So I'm going to pick my truth, and that's what it's going to be. And that's all great until there are, like, real consequences, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what we yeah. see. Like, the tooth fairy is all great until, until like, you know. Until you got to hold an election. Right. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say the and, pandemic and had everyone kind of <laughs> yeah. until, until, until you need a uh, until you need a, a shot in your arm, right, for the pandemic or something, right? Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's, face. it's this is things are getting things are getting a little crazy. That's for sure. Yeah. So I, I I can't help but go like way back in time here, which is like you and I. You're leaving Kodak. Oof. Kodak's like I, there's like people that will listen to this like what's Kodak? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, you know, you were there to kind of try to see if, if, if that could be resurrected, right? That it could, if they could stay relevant. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is like, <laughs> ironically, right? A bit of a Kodak moment for some companies now, the AI moment, right? Yes, and, it only is. And, and and having you having a front seat like as you're sort of like witnessing this oh, yeah. and 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 you know what's happening and everybody there knows what's happening it's not like it's not like they're in the dark they 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 see it it's happening but they can't stop it 
they can't like Kodak just keeps going on this spiral that's un, like they no matter who they bring in you geniuses to come in and save yeah. the day there's just no stopping this like trajectory of of losing yeah. it is there anything you think that you learned from that like seeing it again that companies would be like yeah that, anything could have stopped kodak like is there anything that could have like was that just yeah, it you know the, the, the kodak that's a just interesting story and i i think there's a really there's a cool article on linkedin from ken Perolsky, who i think was a engineering leader yeah. at kodak who, who really outlined what killed kodak and i don't want to get into all the details but really comes down to the fact that Kodak's leadership really wanted to invest, you know, continue to invest in the consumables market, which is all, which is all Kodak ever was, was selling paper and chemistry. It really had nothing to do with, you know, film. Film, film drove the 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 burning of paper and, and chemistry product, right? It's a razor blade, razor blade business, and you know there was a hardcore group of people who thought and knew that digital imaging was the future and was driving towards that, right? But they just couldn't. They couldn't get away from, you know, the, the previous patterns. You have to think about it, the company as being run by chemical engineers, right? It's a bunch of There's chemists, no chemical engineers kind of running this space and people, or, or, you know, you could think of them also as like material scientists, right? They're thinking about how to use materials to make money where then digital ink, you know, like printer ink becomes the new, the new, and toner becomes the new, um, you know, developer fluid and paper and film and all that type of stuff. Meanwhile, we're talking about, well, how do you monetize a digital ecosystem of images, right? You've got eyeballs. You have like, it's literally like images on the web is a killer app, right? How can you right. like, why can you monetize that? And then of course, you know, shortly after I left, not shortly after I left, left Kodak, but you know, Kodak goes bankrupt. I left before they went bankrupt. And then, you know, Instagram gets bought for like, you know, $2 billion, which was more than in Kodak's entire valuation at the time. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a crazy moment, but what I would say, if I were to map those learnings, Rob, back to kind of where we're at today with this, with the emergence of, you know, significant emergence of artificial intelligence over the past ten years, um, is that there's going to be groups inside of these organizations who understand the implications of this, right? That are going to be fighting to change directions, but there's going to be the, the leadership, you know, the previous, you know, entrenched culture. That's gonna that's gonna prevent that, and we're gonna see that across all industries. Like, there's gonna be a sort of resistance to the models, but there's there's so much happening, there's so much momentum, and it's so transformative, and it's transformative everywhere in all the ways that I think a lot of organizations are gonna get caught out, and we're and we're starting to see a little bit of that now. Like, everybody has to make that shift, that big jump, and of course, we've we've watched Microsoft do that over the past few months. And it's been spectacular, right? They're, they 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 understand the implications, and then now we're watching Google scramble. Like when I saw when I when I first interacted with some of the um, large language models and saw what they how they were working and how what they could do, I was like, "This is it's over for Google. Like it's over. Like it's they've just been uh -huh. officially completely disrupted." And it's really interesting to see how Microsoft was able to understand that level of disruption and react to it so effectively right it's just it's just been fascinating and i guarantee you there's you know obviously microsoft has their you know r d and investments in ai that they've been doing and they're obviously keeping their finger on the pulse but they've been moving aggressively you can tell this isn't just something that just happened in the past couple of months they've been preparing for this for years and yeah. making those moves and so i think other organizations need to look at that as a model and say hey we need to react to this now 
and start thinking about these deeper implications. And think about the implications to the end state because the technology is evolving so rapidly. Like I remember back in the, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, we used to talk about internet time. I don't know if you remember. I was like, oh, we're we're on internet time when we do this. And it's like, oh, the pace is crazy and fast. You know, AI time is is at least two orders of magnitude faster than internet time. I mean, if you watch the papers come out, like the, the advancements in AI are increasing week by week. Not year by year. It's it's within weeks. You'll see a paper come out where you know they'll sh- like Nvidia is showing, you know, some of those NURBS modeling. You're just like, oh, this is this is mind blowing. Then the next week, another paper comes out where somebody else then took that to a whole other level of magnitude. Uh-huh. And you're like, this is one week or one month between these two papers, and the advancement and the technology has been that significant. So you can't think about like people are like, well, how can we use Chat GPT? It's like take a step back because that is just the foundation. That's just the beginning. We're going to be taking this to some sort of end state that is almost unfathomable at this point. So we yeah. have to, you have to think beyond just what you see today because it's, it's, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. I was thinking like when, um, mobile kind of, you know, hit and, and we were, we were dealing with pretty big brands at that time. Yeah. And, and I remember, uh, you know, going in and, and, and these guys, you know, saying, hey, you know, I need a mobile app. Uh, I got a budget like 10, 15K. Um, that should be enough, right? Uh, and then, and then of course, they got what they paid for. And then, and then these companies are like, oh, I guess mobile's not for us. We tried it, like, didn't work, right? Right. Um, and getting, getting them to, to like pony up a real, like, make a real go of it was like, it, it took a lot of, a lot of you know tail spinning, right? Understand. They had to understand the impact of of mobile technology. I mean, this kind of goes back to the Kodak conversation because I used to work on consumer electronics, and they were always worried about what they used to call feature phones. Like feature phones had cameras, and cameras were a threat to their digital camera market. Right. And you know, one of the conversations was always like, "Well, are you going to carry two devices or one device? Which way are we going?" So they started to invest in you know. Uh, you know, Motorola's, you know, cameras and, and looking at, okay, this is kind of the, the direction of the future. I think when we, when we saw mobile emerge, the, the idea was, well, why do I care about a phone, right? This is, and, and what is the impact of this, this thing? And, and I think that there's sort of this concept of the legacy concept of the telephone and why is it important in this con- uh, in this particular context? And why does my business need to have a presence here? But it was like, this isn't a telephone, people. We call it a phone. We never use it for, I don't know, you guys probably have never called people on your phone like I do. I don't call people. Um, but it's, it's this is an incredibly powerful mobile, you know, ubiquitous mobile computing platform that is right. networked, right? Like, and and it's, it's got a very powerful graphics engine and um, telecommunications in, engine associated with it. What is the possibilities of that emergent technology? Like people, if you're, you know, if you're just some business and you're, you're operating in a certain way, you're not thinking at that level, but that's how you have to think about this stuff is that this was a fundamentally transformative technology that has yeah. now, you know, shifted how we work, think, interact with yeah. one another. That was like we... first principles, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it feels like a continuation too of, of sort of the UX struggle of, of trying to treat things like a bolt-on when it when it really requires something much more holistic that affects an entire organization, um, you know the the companies that do it right, 
are often like the ones that are kind of built around that process <laughs> or, or the lucky ones, I suppose. Yeah. And then, and then you have the companies that kind of like throw 10 grand at it and watch it fail. And then the companies that like see, like maybe they, someone understands how huge and holistic an undertaking it's going to be. And then they back away because of the scope of it. So yeah, it's it, hard to I, know. Like, Yeah. I mean, the, the level of, I mean, the significant investment has to be made like in this space. And there's of course, lots of different ways to do this. You can be at the, at the ground level, developing your own technology and models, et cetera. You can be leveraging. I mean, the, the amazing thing now, like now that we've got, you know, foundation models, like this is really powerful technology. It's, you know, you could think about, you know, previously this idea of what it would take to sort of deploy this technology or develop this technology. You know, you've got, you need lots of data. You need very talented data scientists. You need the compute infrastructure to be able to process all this stuff. Um, it's starting to shift a little bit, right? And all that, everything that I was speaking about before, that's billions of dollars of investment to create a chat GPT, right? Like it's like just to train them, just to train it, right? Like, holy shit, like the compute is massive. Um, uh-huh. But with with an LLM or foundation models, like these these publicly available foundation models, it's like, you know, you've got, you've got the starter kit. You get the Ferrari motor and the Ferrari Trent chassis and all uh-huh. of that. Um, you get the start and then you've got to just, you know, figure out how to configure the chassis, the suspension or whatever, the interior or whatever to, to go race it on the course. Um, it's probably a very deeply flawed metaphor there, guys. But I'm, <laughs> um, but you get all this stuff and it's an accelerator, right? It's a massive accelerator. So the level of investment to move forward isn't is, is much smaller. You just now you've got a foundation model and you've got all the APIs and, and SDKs associated with that. And then you can just pick up and run as a developer. It's not like it used to be, uh, used to be, and I mean like last year, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's already changed and it's really interesting. And so what are the implications of, of the, the sort of foundation model idea? What is that going to do, right? Now that it's kind of like empowering industry at a different level than, than, we, than it was being empowered before. And I think that's, that's going to have some interesting implications too. Yeah, there's kind of a like a, a moment, right? You just imagine the, because because a lot of these companies are really in the, you know, the the asset, you know, protection mode, right? They're not in the in the explore mode. They're in the exploit mode of, you know, it's it's like when someone gains wealth and they go into like the wealth preservation stage, right? Um, not not make too many too many uh, bad choices, speculative moves, right? Um, and 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 so the, the the CEO gets told like you got to do something here you got to take a risk so he he walks into the room with his engineers and he says okay who in here has a surefire idea on how we can leverage AI and and everyone looks at each other like uh, <laughs> did you say surefire uh, <laughs> yep <laughs> and he's like okay I'll come back when you do right which is like never <laughs> yeah like this is just moving too fast right by the by the time anyone is sure it, like it, the, the moment's gone there's yeah there, it's it it presents this this exact scenario presents me with design challenges on a daily basis like literally <laughs> like this is my problem it's like things are changing you know you've got to adjust continuously and so yeah i think you're right i think i don't know rob like maybe there's a um like if you're asking like what's the sure surefire approach or th- there's a business context in which people are asking that questions there might even be models involved in that like you're at you know it's 
you're asking the the system now for advice on how the system is going to evolve. And if right. you start to think, these are the things that cause me great a great deal of existential angst, right? Like you're now <laughs> querying the machine about how to improve the machine. And then you're starting to get into the this sort of the idea of like a von Neumann machine, right? Self-replicating machines, self-improving machines. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys read a lot of sci-fi, but that too is another very significant issue beyond just like, you know, people were like, oh, we're going to become like slaves to the robots. It's like, no, no, no. The robots don't care about us. But if you give the robots unlimited resources and the ability to self-replicate what happens at that point, right? Yeah. Uh, that can be a very dangerous situation too. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely lose ourselves potentially. <laughs> in <laughs> Not just ourselves. I mean, you, just, you can take it to an end state of all consuming you create a you create a, a set of all-consuming robots that just continuously self-replicate. It's a, basically a cancer for the entire galaxy, right? They just will consume yeah. all matter and replicate till they can't replicate anymore. A more potent yeah. cancer than uh, humanity has proven to be, even which is like, pretty yes. impressive. We're yeah. pretty... Well, that's what humans do. We <laughs> make things. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to uh, like Eckhart Tolle. He's like a German kind of a spiritual teacher but someone asked him if he thought that ai could ever gain consciousness or become spiritual and his answer was interesting because he said that consciousness isn't or in his view it's not something that comes from within your mind it's something that exists it's a frequency that your mind is able to tap into and so from that train of thought he basically said well i mean i suppose a complex enough machine why, why wouldn't it be able to tap into consciousness if consciousness is just this frequency that's right. floating around in the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea was like, is con- it's, there's consciousness and then your brain is a conduit for consciousness to speak through mm-hmm. you as a person like versus consciousness or, you know, exists in your brain. It's, well, it's a compelling idea. I don't, I don't know how, all right. how, how scientific totally- it is. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> I does not know what he's talking about. But when we talk about consciousness, Spielberg. what we're really talking about is, you know, and, and, and spirituality is related to consciousness in, in very concrete ways, right? I, I, I can go deep on this topic too, if you like. But really, you know, when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about the default mode network of the brain, right? The uh-huh. default mode network of the brain is an interaction of, of different, you know, biological systems and anatomy within within the structure of, of of your brain, right? And that's what creates the internal dialogue, the ability to to think with language and create a sense of identity, and to also have the um, uh, theory of mind in other individuals, right? You guys know about theory of mind. Is that uh-huh. has a lot to do with like how we understand sentience in in uh, in AI systems right. as well? So um, you though though. Our consciousness is a direct product of our biology, right? This, this, these silicon substrates do not share the biological substrate. It's a very different type of substrate. Could you train a model to be spiritual? Could you train a model like it's a, a model is a is a as a type of Turing machine, right? Can a model then fully simulate? You know the biological structures of 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 the human brain, and then also the the effect of the default mode network and then have sentience from that part. And then a lot of our spiritual experiences have to do with how the default mode network functions, whether you uh-huh. extinguish it, right? And then you have this sort of connection to the greater world or not. And so can can machines be spiritual in a human-like way? Probably not, unless we unless we build a synthetic 
brain, you know, with that technology. But could they be spiritual in a in a silicon way, in their own way, with a different type of spirituality? Maybe a spirituality we can't identify as humans, right? That's that's, a, that's that maybe that's already happening, Rob. I don't fucking know. Yeah. They're a black box. We don't know what's going on inside of yeah. them. Yeah. I think I, I mean I think if you actually like break down what a neural net is and how it works, um, you know, it's it's this concept of taking data and then anchoring it to something, you know, some data set of some kind, you know, and so you're you're taking taking data and you're kind of and and then you're just like anchoring it to some, you know, some relative point, right? And kind of like when we dream, we there, there's all this data and, and then we, you know, our, our dreams are potentially essentially anchoring this like random data and trying to make sense of it to like real things that are familiar to us. Right. And so a lot of like our ability to, to function without like analysis paralysis is this like idea of like anchoring data into like single points to say oh that's a person and then and then everything that happens gets like categorized and, and anchored in that data set as person and so mm-hmm. neural nets are essentially the ability to, to 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 synthesize data in a practical way to make it practical right mm-hmm. and is spirituality just nothing more than than like just a large uh, neural net in the sense that it's like big data sets that are just anchoring to like, I got to make sense of, of this. So I'm going to anchor it to something I know, like, a like, like whether it's anthropomorphize it or like, these are all just ways to like take data and try to try to make sense of it. Right. With with our experiences, right. From fMRI, you so you imagine you're sitting in this fMRI and and you look at, they show you 10,000 pictures in a row. Mm -hmm. They're training the model, and then from there they can read your mind, essentially. So yep. using using image yeah, generation, I, I they're like the paper. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but well, this goes back to the that when we're talking about the danger in the in the synthesis of media, in that if it the like not only can it be nuanced, but it can understand things about you, right? Even understand what you're potentially even understand what you're thinking with the right technologies and the right inputs, right? Right, like. This is like Rob. It's so scary. It's like this is. It's it. This becomes the end of like when we start start talking about the fMRI imaging and the interpretation of that. Like it comes to the end of end of the lie. Like you can't lie to people because we always can see what the it's truth is. Like that is. movie. <laughs> what was that movie called? Well, there's there's a or, book that the talks invention about, of the lie or something. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Oh and, yeah, yeah that movie. And then there's a whole. I remember it was a science fiction book in the early 2000s that was all about they create like a truth detector machine and what the impact of that was on society. If if you can't get away with a lie anymore, what does that do? Which has got huge implications. But there's the fMRI. Like that's that's a really fascinating thing, right? Using using basically pixels. Like an fMRI image is just a raster grid or a series right. of. Images, which are just you know RG or RGBs in a in a matrix, right? Um, and it's using that to determine your thoughts. Like, let's just process that for a moment. Um, <laughs> but then there's like the, there's some other topics that I'm really interested in too that are related. And that is like you know there there there's that whole ex- experiment with the like cetacean communication where they're they're capturing whale sounds, right? And they're trying yeah, to get a critical yeah. mass of, of data from from the whales so that they can start to decode their communications. Right. And so 
you know, we, we, we live in contact with a number of different species that are very sophisticated. Like a, a dog isn't the smartest thing in the world, but a dog knows about 200 words and, and can communicate things to you. Imagine like this future now where we can actually have dialogue. And you, I don't know if you guys have watched the YouTube videos where they create the little interfaces for the animals and they can click the button that says, I want food or I want snuggles or whatever. You could kind of take that to the next level. And so now all of our communications have opened up in lots of different ways. And I often wonder, is it like with mammalian brains and, and you know, kind of communication and behaviors, I think this is very possible, but what else is it going to open up for us? What other data sets can we process to untangle, you know, different strings of communication from? Like we know that funguses and forests and trees are intercommunicating and moving a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that, um, you know, colonized insects are, can actually behave in very sophisticated ways. Like what other sorts of interesting um, second or third order effects are going to come out of this technology that are going to just totally disrupt how we think about our ecosystems, our our place in the world, et cetera, right? It's, yeah. I, I, and again, Maybe. people just aren't even understanding that this is possible, but it is. It's literally, it's happening now. And it's, I it's know. Walking. Yeah. If my dog could talk, I'm pretty sure it'd never shut up. Like, I think I'd be that guy who, like, <laughs> finally, like, couldn't Grab. hear. And then he got, he, got, <laughs> he got hearing and he just took it out. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for a walk. We should get some snacks. See, what are you doing right now? You go away, guys. Maybe we can unlock the the secrets of dolphin of dolphin humor because they seem to right. be laughing a lot, and their brains have you know so many more folds than ours. I bet they're got a whole you and, know. And they're communicating, and, and they're, like these communications, like there's communication. We think about communication in one specific way. That's very human. Mm. Other species communicate in other ways, right? We're going to be able to untap all of this. It's not just. It's not just, you know, our speech or our thoughts, it's our body language, mm-hmm. it's our facial expressions, it's it's the it's the subtext of our speech as well, as subtext of our our all of this stuff. It, it it starts to be unlocked by these very sophisticated models. They can they can parse that up and then process it. Yeah. How how limited do you think our words are though? Like when it comes to it's you know, it's we're pretty imprecise, right? Like that's why coding language exists because right. Precision of natural, it's not like nobody tried to code in natural language before. Like from the beginning, this was a thing, but it's just not precise. There isn't the precision, you know, there to actually pull it off. So, so like you need that generative component where like something is going to fill in the blanks, kind of like that reading your thoughts, like probably 60% of that image is going to be just generated, like just hallucination, right? And that's mm-hmm. what's so scary is like... It, you know, how would the person looking at that image know what part was hallucinated and what part actually, you know, was, exactly. was, so, so now, so now it like sees it hallucinated, you know, that you, that you, you saw something, um, or you thought something that you didn't think. And, you know, this was like the, you know, conversations we've had several times now where like, there's an irony in the AI regulation, uh, thought process here which is like very minor- minority report which is like they're trying to regulate what hasn't happened yet like there's <laughs> a chance it's going to happen and they're trying to regulate it now which in itself is very funny because like it almost depicts minority report like i don't know let's ask the machine who's going to do it and then let's arrest them now like maybe that's what we should do <laughs> yeah should, maybe that's how we need to regulate ai is just is just Feed it a model of who's going to break the law with AI. Just go arrest them right now. 
Well, that's the type of stuff that we're, t- it's very meta, right? We're, that's the right. kind of thing that we're talking about. It's, it's in, in, well, just read I, well, their the thoughts. Legislate, <laughs> legislators, like, first of all, the legislators are dumb, right? They're not technical mm-hmm. and they're, 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 they operate within the political context. They don't know, right? And they can't legislate. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. May, do we bring the machines into that equation as well? I know it's like, <laughs> yeah. know, we could. Should we? I don't know. These are the big questions, right? The, yeah. The, yeah, the systems that we have where we could create regulations tend to move far too slowly to probably be effective with technology yeah. just going to be moving this quickly. I think it's it's not just for, I think the fundamental threat of AI, it's not just our our legislation. Like this is, everything's going to get upended, Rob. Everything's getting upended. Like yeah. every industry will get upended. Our entire I don't know. It sounds like a little like I'm a doomsayer. Um, I've got hope for humanity, but this will present challenges because it's going to disrupt how we work, um, how we think about our work, how we get things done, our relationships, the nature of our civilization. We talked about how we relate to the world. Those are fundamental disruptions that um, are are going to change things. I mean, I think about, again, Gen Z, their world is going to be very different than the the world that the boomers and the Gen Xers have created up till now, right? It's going to be a very different sort of space. And, and you know, what's going to happen to our, our concept of nation states and, and cultures, right? Like I have a feeling even some of that's going to get disrupted, you know, uh, it could, it could be very problematic for a considerable period of time. I'm, I'm not sure. What's the mood in your circles? Like, is it fear? Is it, is it, is it, I think uh, it's more on the, excitement? like, I'm, I'm scared personally and i know that in in academic circles there's also a trepidation and, and some fear and and people who are who understand the powers of these technologies can see what the impact may be and so it's kind of like you know the, the climate scientists in the 80s talking about global warming like that's kind of where we're at today but um in, in on the on the industry side you know it's more about the enthusiasm it's more about the power of the technology and what the technology can enable and obviously there's a lot of very positive things that can come from this and, and a lot of accelerators for business, a lot of things that can improve the human condition. Right. But, um, yeah. but there's, there's, uh, the, I think the amount of risk, like we don't even understand the risk. We understand the benefits cause we can imagine those, but there's, there's risks and challenges that we don't even perceive yet. That could be fundamentally yeah. problematic to our civilization. Yeah. A lot of the fear I'm seeing with folks in this space is the fear of the people that don't understand it. Um, doing something, uh, uh, you know, villainizing the folks that are that are optimistic about it. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a point to like, you believe in something, you think it can create a, you know, positive future. You're not, it's, it's not 100%, it's less than 100%, but it's more than 50 or, or 60%. Um, so you still have a little bit of doubt and then you wonder like, oh, you know, is it worth, is it worth being in the spotlight? Because for a lot of us in this space, like we've been able to operate a bit on the sidelines, you know, a bit not in the spotlight and now boom, you know, spotlight is yeah. on and it's not, uh, I mean, I, you know, I didn't expect to feel this under, under scrutiny and fear, you know, <laughs> it, you know, you, you kind of running around excited about what this can do, preaching and people looking at you like you're crazy to then people looking at you like you're creating the next tool that's going to end the world. Mm-hmm. And you're going, whoa, like, is it worth it? 
you know, even well, if even if even if it's worth it in terms of you believe in the technology, is it worth it to be in that spotlight? Yeah, you know, this is in, that's an interesting topic because it, and it's timely too because that Christopher Nolan film about Robert Oppenheimer is about to come out, right? Yeah, and very much. We're in that Manhattan Project moment, and right. I'm, I'm really curious to watch that and and see how that's interpreted in film, right? It could be really interesting. But we're kind of at that point, Rob, and it's like, yeah, what are what are we doing? And there's people in in the, you know, if, if you're a player in the industry, if you're involved in this, you, I think everybody's asking themselves, what are what what do we need to do? How do we need to be thinking about this? What are our responsibilities? Yeah. Um, I'm, I think we're, I think we kind of passed that, um, Manhattan project point as well. Like the, the bomb's already been dropped. Uh, the genie is out of the bottle. Like it's out. The genie's out of the bottle. Right. So it's not like, what do, what do we do now? Like, like, and I think this is, you know, the ethicists, the, the, the people strategizing on, on the, you know, visibility, uh, and observability of these systems, um, yeah, I think people are, are diving into this head, you know, as fast as they can and trying to, you know, figure out solutions. But again, I'm, I'm just wondering if the pace of change is going to be too fast or the impact is going to be like, we're going to, we're going to focus on certain areas that we can, That's that we right. understand today. And we're going to, we're going to mitigate those risks. I think we're going to mitigate them just fine. But I, I still think that there's, there's other unknown hidden risks that are going to emerge that, yeah, I'm not sure how we're going to react to those. Yeah, Rob and I feel like there should be more designers working on this stuff, um, just in general. Do you do you think there's a way to, and not not just like visual design, you know, like all all the aspects, all the different disciplines that go into experience design? Mm-hmm. I think um, can have great impact as as we start, you know, I, trying to figure out I, how to move forward with AI. I how, like, how do we get them involved? How do we I, I, attract them? Yeah, well, there are designers dealing with this. I know there's, yeah. there's a group that I interact with out of uh, Amsterdam that's looking at looking at design, specifically design topics with respect to AI and specifically the, the challenges and risks associated with AI. So there, this is happening. There's research groups coming together, um, uh, focusing on these topics. I, I, I think it's, we talk about design. When we talk about design, we're talking about people, right? Like we design things for people. Um, and, and I think people is the important part here. And so it's not just designers. I think let's 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 bring in the the psychologists, the sociologists, the anthropologists, everybody on the human side. Like we have like right now, like AI is dominated by, you know, the math people, the stats people, all the data, all the different flavors of data scientists. Right? Uh-huh. These are all people who, you know, live in that sort of math and engineering and science world. Right. We need to bring in the people from the humanities side to understand like the the more human aspects of this and to dive deep. Yeah, like the philosophers of the world, like how are they interpreting this? What are the implications? Um, how do we want to think about the emergency of these technologies? Like that's where we need the help. So I think yes, yes, design, but even expanding that even further to all of the sort of um, humanities, uh, kind of bringing that to bear because. Yeah, you know, you sit around with a bunch of math nerds all day. They they don't they not they're not thinking about psychology. They're not thinking about uh, sociological impact. They're not thinking about the uh, the emotional impact on the human. Like that's not in their that's not what they're doing. Um, I think some people are aware of the, that those are issues that need to be addressed, but it's not it's not kind of a focus from that perspective. But yeah. I think you're right, Josh. You got to bring that to bear because that's because this is this is human civilization we're talking about. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's like bringing that design mindset, yeah, to bear in other industries because I think as we learned from from UX Magazine, which branched out from like a core audience of hardcore experience designers to like now kind of everyone has a yeah, vested interest in how products. things are designed. They're the minority yeah. in a way. Yeah, I, I I think a lot of us that have been doing this a long time realize that UX is not a profession. It's like a it's like a minor. You know, you're you're yeah. a product manager. You're a you know a manager. You're a you know, entrepreneur with a minor in UX and, um, and that's, that helps you, you know, do your job better. Um, yeah. but like, as far as like UX as an exclusive, like career and, and profession, it's, it's, it's almost like learning a second language in itself. There are a few jobs for translators and the rest that just helps you as a negotiator or as a politician or, or whatever. I mean, I mean, what is what is thinking about UX and, and designing UX is really about the application of, of common sense and thinking about the user and what they're <laughs> right. trying to do, right? It, it's not there's not some special magic involved, you know. Execution of, of beautiful and 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 well done UX and interfaces that go along with that, like there's there's skills and things that are associated uh-huh. with that. But the core problem solving, right, is it's always been blurry from a discipline perspective, like blurry yeah. edges. It's a gradient. That in, and you guys have all seen the diagrams, right? It overlaps into all of these different spaces. And the design mindset is a framework in which you, you know, you, the lens in which you try to solve some of those problems, but it's not the only lens, right? And use, user experience, it's just a, it's a, it's a way to understand things, right? It's a way to think. And you don't have to be a designer to do that. You just have to understand the, the lens. Yeah. And once you understand it, then you can never get away from it. You start to, you're thinking about people, you're thinking about what they're doing, you're thinking about how they're thinking and feeling and, you know, what they want to accomplish, all those types of things. Yeah. And so much of this is just about good taste, right? I mean, whether you can't, whether you can design, whether you can't design, just, just knowing what's good and what's not good, right? Um, yeah. Isn't yeah. That like that, that Rick Rubin quote, like someone asked him, like, what is your job basically? And he's like, well, I just... I believe very highly in my own taste and I'm very good at articulating it to people in moments when they can use it. Like that, yep. that's what I do. I think yep. I, I, you know, when you, when we talk about designers, it often comes down to taste. When we talk about user experience and the performance of a product that is measurable, right? right. That there is science that can be applied to that. But at the same time, you know, you have to make these experiences desirable too. Like it, even the most banal enterprise experience needs to have that you know, Rob, you, we we built a business on this, right? Yeah, it has to have that dimension, and so that's where uh-huh. the you know some of the, the the taste making comes in, and you know all that type of stuff. And that's you know where designers are are uh, designers create culture. That's how I think about it. Either material culture, if you're an industrial designer, visual culture, if you're a graphic designer or artist, you know the, the digital culture, if you're a more traditional UX designer, like we're the uh-huh. we're the ones making the things in the world that populate our space and, and create our experiences. Right. And so, yeah, you yeah. gotta be, you gotta be a little bit of a taste maker, which just means, you know, taking risks and understanding where things are going and understanding what's possible. Yeah. Well, that's a big piece of it, right? Like as a designer, kind of like science fiction authors, they, they tend to have the ability to kind of see things through. They can, they can look at something they're building and start imagining how it might look 10 steps down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's an important skill set to bring yeah right now in particular extrapolation and implications and impact 
Yeah, that's that's. I mean, when I'm thinking about new tech, that we were just talking about mobile phones. Like, I'm looking at a phone because I, you know, back in the day, I was thinking about, you know, this is back when we used to call, um, we used to talk about UbiComp, ubiquitous computing, right? That was uh-huh. like the future, ubiquitous computing and ambient intelligence, which we live in that world today, but we don't use those terms at all, right? Like, it's just, you know, I've got my Alexa over here, I've got my mobile phone, I got my laptop. You know, I've got my Garmin device, my watch, everything's, it's, it's a ubiquitous computing environment now. And, and I can interact with these systems as casually as I want, uh, right? So we're thinking about it from those terms, thinking about it at a very base level. And so that's how you have to think about, you know, what are the, what is, what have I seen today? But what does that imply for tomorrow and the day after that yep. and so forth, right? Because this, the way that humans work is we, we make a thing and then we make it better and then we make it better again, and we don't yep. ever stop. Yep. That's why we have. That's why we have artificial intelligence now, right? Yeah. And if we that's make it we too be- too much better too quickly, everyone freaks out. And <laughs> yeah, and we do that. We if we do that, we we've done this. And you know the, yep. the funny thing is, Rob, you, you look back to antiquity, to classical, yeah, you know, classical civilization. They they knew these ideas. They understood this, right? Yeah. Like this is the, the myth of Pandora. Right, Prometheus. Right, this is the Pandora moment, the Promethean moment, all over again. These we've been warned about this by our ancestors. They right. said, "Don't do stupid shit. <laughs> Pay attention right. to what you're doing. Although there'll be problems, and think about think about things before you act and and do whatever." Right? Yeah. They warned us, but we always forget. Yeah, Somehow, awesome. stupid shit always feels new. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's time. a great way to yeah. wrap it up, Every time. Huh, guys. <laughs> yeah <laughs> somehow Good. stupid shit always feels new yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on well thanks um, tim uh yeah yeah we'd love to great. love to continue the conversation again um sometime yeah this yeah this is awesome really i can do this all day as you can tell <laughs> okay. yeah we, right yes all right and, all and other- yeah i'm happy to i'm happy to contribute at any point um if you guys want to ping me again i I'm, i love it yeah Awesome. And I've got I've got other folks like me too, so just let me know. Cool. Happy to do this more. This is great. Awesome. All right. Thanks again for hanging out with us right here on Invisible Machines. Thank you, as always, to the team at UX Magazine, especially Kate Timchenko, the marketing team at OneReach AI, uh, Elias Parker in particular work very hard to make this podcast great, as does Michael Litvinoff, our video editor. Please subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they come out. If you want to watch new episodes, and I recommend you do, the the video feeds are really pretty amazing. Follow the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. And uh, I think that's all I have for you this week. So let's go ahead and look forward to next week when we will connect again right here on Invisible Machines. Invisible Machines.